The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I thought the, the imagery was really effective. So, for example, there was a section of time where they painted a picture of, okay, at 2.13 p.m., the first window was broken in the Capitol. At 2.16, Vice President Pence was evacuated from the floor. At 2.24, Trump sent his tweet that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And at 2.26, he was evacuated again to the location where he was held where the where his secret service detail started to make calls over the radio asking people to tell their loved ones they said goodbye i thought that was very dramatic and and really very disturbing i'm benjamin wittis and this is the lawfare podcast july 23rd 2022 thursday evening prime time was the final hearing in the spree of hearings the january 6th committee has put on this summer. It focused on Donald Trump's personal conduct in the period in which the riot was taking place. We sat down in a live Twitter spaces to debrief on it all. Quinta Jurassic, David Priest, Natalie Orpet, Molly Reynolds, all before a live audience on Twitter asking questions both orally and in writing. We talked about where this hearing fit in with the larger story the committee was telling. We talked about what we learned that was new, what we learned that was duplicative, and we talked about what the committee is going to do between now and when its hearings resume in September. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 23rd, January 6th hearings, Day 8 Debrief. Quinta, uh, what did we learn from this hearing and what was your initial reaction to it? I think it's fair to say that this hearing had less new information than the other hearings did, but that that doesn't mean that it's a that it wasn't a bombshell necessarily. What the committee sort of set itself to do was walk through the 187 minutes and they they kept repeating that in between when Trump returned from to the White House from his speech at the Ellipse that uh, helped initiate the violence that day. And when he walked out into the Rose Garden a little bit after 4 p.m. to record and release a video that uh, essentially told the rioters to go home. Um, you might recall, he says, uh, we, we love you, you're very special. Um, and the argument that the, the committee was essentially making is that, you know, this is not a period of inaction by Trump. Rather, it's a period of of action by Trump when uh, he he essentially had the option to stop uh, the violence and chose explicitly not to. That he, during this period, was sitting in the White House dining room. We saw some little uh, 3D models um, of of the White House dining room with Fox News playing on the little television channel. 
and that uh, he was watching Fox, um, calling senators, members of Congress, encouraging them to continue objecting to the certification of the electoral count, that he was during that period also tweeting uh, things that sort of helped rile up the crowd rather than calm it down. And this was all despite the urging and desperation of people in the White House. Um, at one point, White House counsel, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone was shown in a deposition being being asked whether anyone in the White House had wanted to do anything other than, than tell Trump to call the riots off. And Cipollone said, no one on the staff thought that everyone wanted Trump to tell the rioters to essentially back down and that uh, he he invoked executive privilege, but it seemed like, reading between the lines, the only person who disagreed with that was Trump himself. Um, so the, there were a few sort of pieces of, of new information here and there. I think that the, the most jarring in my mind was a testimony from an official in the White House, anonymized, we don't know who, uh, saying that they they heard audio from the Secret Service team defending or protecting uh, Vice President Mike Pence during this period. Um, live, this is the live communications between that team that there was, you know, yelling, screaming, um, and that these folks uh, thought that they were going to die and started making personal calls over the radio, saying goodbye to family members. Um, I think that was extraordinarily upsetting. And it is after this point that Trump made that famous tweet that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. That I think is is really the the bulk of it. Um, we we did kind of did get that that TikTok. I think there was also some new information about what Trump did at the the very end of the day where after he he left the dining room after recording that Rose Garden video and went up to the residence for an anonymous White House employee uh, who testified to the committee, apparently after that point, Trump said nothing about the attack, but commented only, and I quote, Mike Pence let me down. Um, I think that is is uh, <laughs> striking as well. That essentially is the long and the short of it. So the, the committee has said that they're planning to continue hearings in September, that they're receiving new information still. Um, and of course, it's it's worth remembering that this is not, you know, the end of the committee's work, even apart from those September hearings, that they've still, they've committed themselves to uh, releasing uh, a full report about their findings. So this may be the end of sort of, you know, this uh, month long or month and a half long sprint of hearings, but they certainly are signaling that there's more to come. All right. So before we uh, get into the more to come, because I actually thought that was one of the most interesting elements of the hearing, uh, let's get quick reactions. David, what did you think of this hearing relative to as both on its own, but also as part of the sequence of of hearings that the committee has put on to date? As part of the sequence, I thought it was remarkably effective. It pulled together some of the threads that had been teased in earlier hearings, and it did provide some new information. As Quintus said, it was not bombshell information, but it provided some new interesting information that really painted a picture of Trump that I suspect he himself doesn't like. A few things that stood out for me in that regard. First, early on, when they were talking about him moving to the private dining room near the Oval Office and spending an entire afternoon there watching Fox News, they pointed out that the White House photographer was you know, going in because that's what White House photographers do. If you've spent time in any functioning White House, you realize there really aren't sensitive moments that the photographer isn't there for. If it's a world crisis, if it's a domestic tragedy, the photographer is omnipresent. And for hours, they told the White House photographer, you know, do not go in there. That combined with the pairings that the committee did on what Fox News was showing, followed by the immediate actions of the president or inactions of the president. One was just before two o'clock when Fox News was reporting the president fired this crowd up. And then quickly after they label it effectively a riot and they show the people going through the barricades. 
And they followed that talking about what Trump did not do. And then as Quinta mentioned, the one around 221, I believe it was in the afternoon when Fox showed a rioter saying that they were very disappointed in Pence. They've heard the news that he is not doing what they want him to do. And only a couple of minutes later, there was a presidential tweet about Pence not having the courage. And then finally, I would say on the Trump side, the images at the end of Trump trying to do his presentation in the Rose Garden and having trouble getting through the takes. That's something for somebody who likes to project a certain image has to just be embarrassing. He didn't want to say that you know the election was over. He couldn't get out the word yesterday because, as he said, yesterday is a hard word for me. That, to me, more than the the TikTok of inaction and the dereliction of duty and the inability or unwillingness to actually execute his oath of office. I think for Trump himself and for the people directly around him, the shattering of that image of calm, cool, and collected has to be just devastating. Natalie, what was your reaction? Was yesterday a hard word for you or uh, are you comfortable with yesterday? I think I'll just go ahead and avoid that one. But I will say <laughs> that um, my reaction was that I thought the TikTok was very effective. And in some ways, it was almost painting a picture like you could imagine someone dictating a, a script of a, I mean, political action sequence in a, a TV show. You had the sort of side by side images of what was happening within the White House among the staff who were not with Trump, you know, these side conversations going on saying, we have to get him to do something. No, you heard him. He doesn't want to do anything. What was going on in the Capitol? What was happening on Fox News, as David said? And I thought the the imagery was really effective. So, for example, there was a section of time where they painted a picture of, okay, at 2.13 p.m., the first window was broken in the Capitol. At 2.16, Vice President Pence was evacuated from the floor. At 2.24, Trump sent his tweet that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And at 2.26, he was evacuated again to the location where he was held where the where his Secret Service detail started to make calls over the radio asking people to tell their loved ones they said goodbye. I thought that was very dramatic and and really very disturbing. There were a couple of other little things um, that I think, although they were not new information per se, it was sort of further corroboration. So for example, we had heard before that Trump had not reached out to the Pentagon or the Metropolitan Police or the Capitol Police at any point, and that in, instead um, Vice President Pence had been the person interfacing with them, although he actually has no place in the constitutional order for chain of command there. But apparently that was okay with everyone for the time being. But they had that corroborated further by having uh, footage shown from a deposition of um, Kellogg who said, yes, I absolutely would have known had he done it. So it was just confirming more, lest anyone have any doubt that maybe he had actually made these calls and the committee just hadn't talked to the right people to know that that was true. So I'll, I'll leave it there. But I, I thought it was interesting. I, I thought it was a little bit long, to be honest. Well, I guess I'll say one other thing. The, the TikTok was effective in showing this absence of action to the extent that it became an, a negative action. And that was in the service, as, as David and Quinta both said, of trying to show that he had had a real dereliction of duty, that he had, he had not upheld his oath. They started by saying, by presenting the constitutional language of the unique oath that the president takes. And so in this sense, you know, that it underscored a theme that we've spoken about a lot on these spaces. And actually, uh, Quinta and I, with our colleague Tyler McBrien, wrote a piece several weeks ago at this point, making the argument that part of the committee's work here is, you know, it is not to create a criminal case because that's not the ambit of Congress, but it is to reassert what is meant by an oath and why oaths are important um, and why everyone should care that even if it's not breaking a law per se, that breaking an oath is a very serious matter.
All right. So I want to I want to talk about the witnesses in this hearing. It seemed to me the use of witnesses here was somewhat less effective than in prior hearings. Neither of the two witnesses seemed to me to have uh, a great deal of new material to bring to the table. And one of them, uh, Matt Pottinger, uh, really spent a lot of time speechifying. Quinta, do you have a, a sense of what the committee's strategic purpose here was and, and how do you think it uh, fared with it? So I'd certainly agree that I, I don't think, you know, they were there to kind of, again, you know, drop any bombshells, anything like that. Um, I would certainly agree that Pottinger seemed, who's a, a former deputy national security advisor, seemed uh, perhaps a little enchanted with the the sound of his own voice. Um, I do think that that what the committee was able to do here is just kind of point out how many people were around Trump were disgusted by by what was happening, um, how universal that distaste was. And I I do think that matters because as as we've kind of all been saying, you know, this is a situation where we're maybe not adding substantial new information, but we're just really, really hammering home this point that Trump could have been taking action to stop the riot, and he went in completely the other direction. Um, and this is just providing, you know, further corroboration of that point. So um, I believe her name is Sarah Matthews, the other witness who is uh, in the White House communications office. She provided testimony, essentially just, you know, saying that she she was deeply, deeply frustrated with the inaction or, or action in the wrong direction on, on Trump's part, that there is a, a conversation that she had with other folks in the press office about whether or not Trump should send out a statement decrying the violence that some felt that, you know, to do that would be, I think she used the language to hand a win to the media. Um, and she uh, said that she responded, and I'll quote her directly here, bleeps and all. She gestured at the television where the riot was going on and said, does it look like we're effing winning? So I, I do think that that, you know, it adds color insofar as a lot of what we saw after the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony was Republicans in the Trump camp trying to kind of cast doubt on what Hutchinson said, that it, it does help to have, you know, witnesses who can say, no, this this really did happen, you know, just to kind of bolster the sense that this isn't Hutchinson being a, a fabulist, which I, I don't think anyone really thought was the case, but that this was, you know, she was sort of the first person out of the gate testifying to what happened. I should also note this wasn't live testimony, but the committee also heard uh, or showed deposition video from a former uh, sergeant, I believe, in the D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department who was with the, the motorcade on January 6th and, and testified to the fact that he had been told that Trump was irate, that he wasn't being taken to the Capitol, that there, there was a, a dispute around that, and that also bolstered what Hutchinson had said. So I think for me, the use of the witnesses here really came across more as, as kind of just underlining the extent to which the committee had kind of totally locked down everything that it was saying, that it wasn't flying by the seat of its pants, you know, that it it had referenced and cross-referenced and dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, um, and that these are sort of the folks that it was bringing in to show that that was the case. I'd like to take that one step further. To this point in the hearings, we've had witnesses like Cassidy Hutchinson, who who offered information that was new. That's true. But we've also had some witnesses who were clearly, we are going to go at this point in the script to this person who's going to say this thing. It was very well programmed. And last night's hearing was clearly in the latter category. And it was a step beyond that. So if you listen to Matt Pottinger in particular, but also Sarah Matthews, both of them, and, th and this was no accident, the committee does very few things by accident in these public presentations. Both of them made a point to emphasize how devoted they were to this administration and its policies. Matt Pottinger said it the most in what 
seemed like an aside, but certainly was not, that I support Trump's foreign policy. We had some great successes like taking China seriously and helping Israel reach peace agreements with some of its neighbors. To me, this hearing had a different flavor than the others in that regard. Listen, if if we had a time machine and could go back to early 2020 or so, and you tell me that a hearing of a select committee, which has been boycotted by the Republican leadership and members named solely by Nancy Pelosi, would be led by Liz Cheney and have major questioning from Adam Kinzinger, two solid Republican conservatives who you have to recall voted against impeaching Donald J. Trump in December 2019, and that this hearing would feature Mitch McConnell as the first evidence presented, and then have Matt Pottinger and Sarah Matthews on there talking about how devoted they were to the Trump cause, my head would still be spinning now that that this could have happened. This hearing was a way of saying, we know Donald Trump is watching. For all the people out there who are still having that magnetic attraction to him, we are going to show you how these people did it. It wasn't to present new evidence. It was simply to have people who were that close to Trump saying, and we are this disillusioned. This is actually a great segue to a question that Molly and I were uh, tweeting about yesterday evening. Molly, this hearing was chaired by Liz Cheney, uh, who is, as David notes, not a member of the majority party. Uh, how, How unusual is it for a congressional hearing in a Congress run by Democrats to be chaired by a Republican, uh, much less a Republican who has been a member of the Republican leadership in the House. Yes. um, So I actually think that when we are trying to kind of put what's happening in these hearings in a broader context, this piece is really important. There is you know, if you are not a person who watches congressional hearings with any uh, frequency, and really you probably shouldn't be, um, there's a lot happening in these hearings that is really unusual. One of the things is what we saw last night. So obviously part of what generated uh, Representative Cheney chairing the hearing was the fact that Mr. Thompson, the the chair of the committee, um, is out with COVID. But in, you know, any other hearing, the Democratic chair is out with COVID, the next senior uh, member of the Democratic Party on the committee would would chair the hearing. Um, and that's not what we saw last night. We saw um, Liz Cheney, who, as you pointed out, is not just a Republican, but was until about 15 months ago, a member of the Republican leadership, take the reins and um, and run the show. And so that um, that is pretty remarkable. I would also um, say, you know, this was the second hearing where large parts of the questioning and the hearing were led by um, Mr. Kinzinger who's also a Republican. Um, I think uh, the sort of pairing of Mr. Kinzinger and Mrs. Luria last night was very effective. They both have sort of uh, real national security bona fides as as members to to draw on um, in this context. And then I'll also just say that sort of this, you know, we don't usually see hearings in, in, in prime time. And I think some of, we can kind of talk about like what the committee chose to do with that prime time slot. Um, I agree with a lot of what David was saying about one of the audiences, one of the really important audiences for this hearing being um, Republican elites. So folks who who sort of are still literally or figuratively dues-paying members of the Republican Party. I thought it was really telling that with this hearing, they actually opened with Puttinger and Matthews giving some of their uh, Republican bona fides, sort of establishing their credentials as as card-carrying Republicans. And, you know, particularly Puttinger talking about how, like, he still agrees with a lot of policy-wise what the Trump administration was up to. Um, so they, they sort of chose to do that at the very beginning to kind of put those cards on the table. Again, I think, um, to, to echo David, that that was part of this overall mission that they have or what they see as one of their goals as to try and make clear to Republican elites kind of really what happened here. And then I think that that was kind of interestingly paired with in this primetime slot, this goal of trying to illustrate as clearly as humanly possible for folks 
who are not Republican elites, who are just, you know, people who are paying attention to what's happening, but haven't been following all of the ins and outs of what we've learned at what point over the past um, year or so about this investigation, trying to make it just really exceedingly real for people. I was really struck, for example, by the pairing of, so, you know, when uh, Trump sends his his tweet in uh, and sort of around 2.30 in the afternoon, they sort of paired the discussion of that with footage of what was actually happening inside the Capitol building at uh, how much violence was happening literally as he was tweeting. Um, I think sort of that um, I was also struck by sort of a, there was a, a part where they uh, displayed text by um, some members of the the Trump uh, national security team who were in the White House. And they seemed, you know, both deeply troubling the events that were being recounted. And also, I think meant to illustrate, like, if this was your job, this is the kind of thing you would be talking about with your coworkers while it was happening. And so, again, simultaneously trying to ground the events of the 6th for people um, who maybe maybe they watched some of the first hearing, maybe they were tuning into this one, maybe they are only going to see clips of it, but really trying to ground it while also trying to accomplish this secondary goal of, of appealing and, and portraying the story for um, uh, folks at much higher levels of the Republican Party. Molly, I want to f- follow up with that. One of the interesting dimensions of both Kinzinger and Cheney's performances last night and actually throughout the thing is the subtext, which sometimes is not such a subtext, of burning hatred and vendetta against Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. Both of them showed, repeatedly showed clips of things that uh, the House and Senate leadership had you know, said about Donald Trump at the time, reminding people that they are, uh, that they know the truth here and are sort of not, not saying things today that are remotely consistent with their reactions at the time. Uh, I'm curious, uh, and I know, Natalie, you have thoughts on this too, so come in whenever Molly is done, what the subtext of that of, of that dynamic is it's was particularly I thought striking last night. Yeah, so I um I think you're you're right to sort of pick up on it as subtext at times and then bordering uh, into just full on text at others. Um, I think one of the things this really illustrates for me, um, particularly in the context of um of Leader McCarthy, is not just the real sort of dereliction of, of duty on his part um, in um, in the immediate aftermath of of the sixth and um, sort of in in the in the months afterwards but just how many challenges the Congress and by extension the country will face if Kevin McCarthy um, is the the speaker of the house in early 2023 it is is exceedingly difficult to lead uh, the current House Republican Conference. And I think there are lots of things, and some of them came up last night, um, where we should have real questions about whether um, Leader McCarthy is um, is up to the job. And so I think some of that, some of it I'm sure also is personal. You know, I think that the, you know, particularly if you're Liz Cheney um, and you were a member of the Republican leadership um, and you now are not anymore, um, uh, in part because of the the direction the conference has gone. Um, I'm sure you harbor um, some ill will towards, um, towards Leader McCarthy. But I think that it just, again, illustrates real challenges, not just about the sixth um, and the, the aftermath, but about sort of where we might be going uh, next year. Natalie? Yeah, I agree with all of that. I I think, to be honest, um, and Molly is really the expert here, but I've found myself wondering um, about this strategy just in the sense that it it seems a little risky, frankly. It seems like it could play into arguments that, sure, there are Republicans on this committee, but they're not really Republicans, and this is all just a Democratic witch hunt and, and some of the related rhetoric that we're hearing from Republicans who are trying to delegitimize the work of the committee. But on the other hand, I think, you know, there have been gestures throughout and even in the lead up to these hearings about how the committee was going to be 
working to hold members of Congress accountable to some extent. So earlier on, you know, people may have thought or or hoped that there was going to be, you know, the committee would have evidence of certain members of Congress really doing something that could tie them directly to the violence that happened at the Capitol. And we haven't seen any of that. But this is a, a sort of quieter way of holding members of the Republican leadership to account and making them appear to be culpable for some of what happened, um, both during and and afterwards. And, you know, I, I don't know what the impact will be. It, it seems like there's it, it could sort of go either way. But I do think it's an important it's, it's an important thing to do to try to um, impose accountability. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So I want to, before we go to audience questions, I want to talk about what comes next. And it seems to me that the committee uh, has done something very clever here. Uh, and I want Quinta and David, uh, your uh, reactions to this. They've said, we're, ta- you know, we're gone for the month of August, but boy, people keep coming in uh, and giving us more information. And so we're open for business and we'll be back in September to talk about the new things that we've found, which seems to me to be a, a subtle kind of shakedown. And I mean shakedown in the, in the best possible way, where they're basically saying, hey, do you want the next hearings to be about you? Or do you want the next hearings to be ones in which you're the witness or you're the, you know, your, your testimony is actually uh, what's important? And those groups of people, I mean, think about the difference between the way the committee has portrayed somebody like Eric Hirschman and the way it's portrayed uh, somebody like Rudy Giuliani. Those, those are very different baskets to be in. And the committee basically seems to me to have said, you have a month to come in and then, you know, we're going to, to settle remaining scores at that point. So Quinta, uh, do you do you buy my analysis of what the committee is doing here? And if so, uh, do you think it's uh, an effective investigative strategy and we're likely to get kind of new bombshells in September? Let's have uh, Quinta and David on this. It's a great question, and I, I'd also be interested to hear Molly's thoughts on on this one. Um, I hadn't thought of it in in so many words in that way, but I think you may be onto something. I mean, to to me, it also struck me as a little bit of you know, in in the same way that the committee has been kind of giving teasers at the end of each hearing for what's coming next. This is a little bit of you know, tune in for season two of insurrection. Right, what will happen next? Um, you too can be part of the story. And and I do think that they've they've clearly been very effective in kind of keeping the ball rolling in that way. I mean, I do think that, you know, these last couple of hearings have been maybe a little more disorganized than the initial hearings. And and I, I wonder if part of that is actually because they're getting new information and they have to incorporate it. You you see that, for example, 
in getting, uh, you know, a sort of weaving in testimony from White House counsel Pat Pat Cipollone, uh, which we we know um, was recorded only after the unexpected testimony by Hutchinson, and so you know at at the end of each hearing. Uh, Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, others have kind of said, you know, our investigation is continuing. We're getting more information. I, I don't know if they said that this time, but but each time they've they've been saying also, you know, we have a tip line, um, and have been saying, you know, we we've been getting tips on our tip line. So whatever their strategy is, I, I do think that it, it seems to have been very effective, and I I certainly would not be surprised if in the intervening month they're able to turn up a lot new material. It sure seems to me like, I don't know, I could be surprised here, but I'm highly confident that the committee already has some new information that they simply have not presented because it did not fit the thematic structure of these hearings the way they've conceived them so far. So yes, there is some part of saying that about we're going to have hearings of please feel free to come forward. Some part of that is to encourage people to come forward. And frankly, that does have some support in the hearing itself. Uh, You might recall at one point, Adam Kinzinger was talking about what the president was saying and not saying, saying, you know, crowd, stay peaceful, remain peaceful at a time when they could demonstrate that he knew the crowd was not being peaceful after that, saying all the president did was post two tweets, then they showed the footage of people noting that the president said, support the Capitol Police. They are on our side. And you heard them say as an aside, notice he didn't say anything about any congressman. Now, to me, that combined with the appeal at the end is a way of saying, all right, we know other members of Congress and perhaps their staff have something to say here. Maybe they already have some of it. Maybe they're seeking more, but that was a subtext to this. And Molly, I'd be interested to hear your view as well on whether you think that a direct public appeal in this sense could actually be as effective as a lot of the behind the scenes things they've already been doing. Yeah. So I think the, um, what I wanted to note on this is that I think it's If and when uh, there are more hearings in September, I think it will be important to remember that um, this is not necessarily the way the committee, particularly Mr. Thompson, sort of originally laid out the plan for what was going to happen. So if you sort of go all the way back to like last fall when the committee was getting its investigation underway, you know, Mr. Thompson said the goal was to do some hearings and then issue a report in the spring. Um, And then that kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And then there was this plan for this sort of full-on blitz of hearings over like two weeks in June. Um, And then that was going to be it for the hearings. And then we were going to get the report. And so I think one of the things that's really um, important to to know here is, and I don't know, David, whether they already have the new information that they're planning on talking about in um, in September, or they really are still trying to get more new information and in, trying to get more people to come forward. But I think this just all illustrates the degree to which in something um, as complex and where you have a congressional committee really bearing the responsibility for doing a deep and broad public investigation of what happened, that you even as hard as you try, members of Congress, you can only control so much of what happens. And so I think that's um, just, again, as we continue to watch where this goes, I think that's important to remember. Okay. We have a number of questions from the audience through Twitter. Catherine, uh, Twitter questions. We have a question from IT Robertson that asks, is there any risk that the August recess and a loss by Cheney in the primary will lead to the whole process being incomplete by the time the new house is seated next January. Just to answer that real quick, um, the process will be as complete as it will be when the new house comes in um, in January. And that, I think, will have little to do with whether Mrs. Cheney loses her wins or primary. Like, they have a really loud and getting louder ticking clock um, of the end of the year. Um, and that, I, I think, is not necessarily affected um, by uh, Mrs. Cheney's own electoral fortunes. Catherine? At Loose Bits asked, the opening statement by Thompson spoke a lot about accountability and accountability under the law. 
I don't recall the stressing of that in prior hearings. Do you feel the committee is expressing their frustration with the Justice Department? So I have some thoughts on this, uh, which was, of course, the subject of a debate this week between uh, me on the one hand and Quinta and Natalie on the other. Uh, I am going to ask Natalie and Quinta to give their thoughts on it first, however, because uh, I don't think I should abuse my position uh, as the moderator. Sure. Happy, happy to weigh in. Um, I do think that the committee has been talking about accountability in this sense, you know, from, from the beginning and in some form or another, you know, that that's always kind of been the, the undercurrent of what they're doing here, that there is some level of public accountability that they're bringing. And, and frankly, I think you see that in, in some of the more silly, perhaps uh, vindictive, you might say little aside, such as uh, the showing video of uh Senator Josh Hawley sprinting away from the rioters that he helped incite with his own uh, fist pump. There's a little bit of kind of holding him up before the public and saying, you know, we're going to hold you accountable for this. That said, I think that the questioner is absolutely right that there is some uh, frustration on the part of the committee at this point that the Justice Department has not taken more overt action. And you see that not only in the language that they're using in this hearing, but Really, the the fact that they, you know, they they've been saying all along they they've really built their case very carefully as a sort of case against Donald Trump personally, um, in the language of the criminal law, and I think that there is a frustration that the Justice Department has not taken more action. Now, I think you could also say it is entirely appropriate for the committee to be pushing here, and it makes sense that the Justice Department is the entity that you know that needs to be pushed. This is part of what happens in a uh, system where you know we we have different branches of government and there's a, a push and pull there, but the listener is certainly correct in identifying. I think uh, perhaps a, a certain impatience <laughs> on on the part of members of the committee with uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. Natalie, yeah, I'll echo all of that. I, I think it's a it's a good point um, to raise that those statements were made. Though I do think, as I mentioned earlier, that this hearing was sort of interestingly more about the non-legal in the sense of not statutorily mandated types of responsibilities that Trump had. It was really much more a discussion of how Trump's actions violated his oath and violated the types of responsibilities that one would expect as a bare minimum from the president of the United States. Um, so I think the the substance of the hearing was was very much not about DOJ or the lack of action on a criminal law sense. So it was perhaps interesting that that was mentioned up top um, as maybe a bit of a signal to DOJ. Yeah, so we're in full agreement here. Look, this is a situation where everybody is doing their respective jobs and playing their role. Uh, The Justice Department's job is to conduct a criminal investigation And the committee's job is to pound the table and demand political accountability and to demand other forms of accountability, including legal accountability, uh, and to push the Justice Department to be uh, ever more aggressive. And so I I just see that as, uh, yes, it reflects the frustration that a lot of them have articulated both publicly and privately. It also reflects the structural difference between the Justice Department and the committee in their roles. Uh, Catherine, you have one more question from Twitter. At John M. Alpine asked, Q, I was surprised there was no video or testimony of Trump enjoying and celebrating the insurrection. Seems like such testimony might help prove intent. Did this surprise others? A lost opportunity? So David, I, I want you to take this uh, as you are our resident philosopher of presidents behaving badly, I assume uh, you know uh, the point made earlier that the White House photographer did not have access to the president is part of the explanation for this. Yeah, you got it. Uh, it was a deliberate choice by the president or by someone around him. They did not explore that question. I'm not sure it's a central question, but it's absolutely fascinating to me. Was it President Trump saying uncharacteristically, I do not want to be in pictures and videos for the next few hours? 
Was it a member of his family, perhaps Ivanka or uh, Jared, if Jared could be out of the shower long enough to make such a comment during this stressful afternoon? Or was it a member of the staff, like the chief of staff, who made that comment? And if so, why? I would like to know that. I think that is the primary reason why we don't have it, because the president or someone around him said, we don't want those images. Can I just say one thing on this, um, which is uh, uh, because it's a question about video we did not see. I want to make one note of some video we did see that was um, pretty surprising to me that we have, that the committee has, which is um, the video of the congressional leadership on the phone uh, with, uh, I believe it was the Secretary of Defense, though I don't remember that for sure, talking about sort of how long would it take for them to clear the building uh, in order to uh, allow the House and the Senate to resume their work. That's just pretty remarkable. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that we sort of knew must have happened. Um, but the fact that there was video of it that they could show in the hearing, um, I think this was a question about what didn't we see. I think that was a piece of video that it's pretty remarkable that we did see. All right. It is time for audience questions. And the first question goes to Lori. If you have a question, the floor is yours. Hi. So Matt, Matt Pottinger, he's an ambitious speechifying Republican, but he also understands that our Constitution is the most important thing that all of us should care about. So how soon do you think he'll run for office? <laughs> well, Who has thoughts on Matt Pottinger? I, I will say I was speculating on this uh, last night as we were watching him uh, go on and on and on. I would not be surprised to see him uh, commit to running for office soon. But I will say it's a different path than those who have tried to run for office or have run for office from that administration. You look at a Ronnie Jackson, who was able to run for office because of his immense flattery of Trump and his basically unwillingness to jump off the bandwagon. Whereas Pottinger, it's it's kind of like, in a very general sense, it's kind of like a Mike Pence situation, where here's someone who was a true believer, backing all the policies, doing all the things, but then at the end won't have the support of a dramatic percentage of the Republican Party because he's a, quote, traitor. So I'm not sure what the constituency is, but he certainly was trying to present himself in that light. Okay. Ian, the floor is yours. Hi, Ben. Uh, Great show. Great podcast. Been following for a long time. I asked this question on Twitter as well and was curious what your uh, distinguished panel uh, thinks about this. Given the stark revelations of the hearing last night, and in in particular sort of coupled with Jonathan Jonathan Swan's reporting in Axios today about the former president's uh, continued efforts to consolidate power in a very undemocratic way, not to be too hyperbolic, but I'm wondering whether uh, we should start drawing more significant historical comparisons with the re-rise of Adolf Hitler following his uh, imprisonment for the failed coup d'etat. I know that former President Trump is a fan and has read uh, many books on Hitler, and I think that's public knowledge that he's been a fan. Do you think that that's something that he is eyeballing? And, And if so, what should we be doing more from a policy standpoint to avoid those types of issues? Thanks. So who has thoughts on Nazi comparisons here and specifically on January 6th to Beer Hall Putsch comparisons? <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a dangerous comparison because of obviously so many things that come with it. But there is there is a, a kernel of truth behind it, and I'm glad Ian raised it. And that is the idea of, in the broad sense, accountability. And we have judicial accountability. And then we have constitutional accountability. One could say that constitutional accountability failed when there was the impeachment of the the second impeachment of this president, which is the remedy for violating the oath of office, and that that did not work. Now everybody is focusing on judicial accountability, and I definitely encourage all of you, if you have not, to look at the pair of articles on lawfare by Ben and by. Natalie and Quinta, respectively, that were referred to earlier on that front. On the constitutional accountability front, I found it very interesting that there was explicit mention made of the fact that during the first, 
let me put it this way, during the second impeachment of Donald Trump, the first time that the insurrection was an issue for his fitness for office, we knew a lot of things, but they emphasized how much have we learned since then? And if there were some Republicans who were already willing to hold the president accountable for his actions then, how many more should be willing to do it now and prevent him from holding office in the future? I don't think there will be a third impeachment hearing to go over the same issues as the second, but that was one of the points being made last night. And if it won't be a constitutional proceeding like an impeachment and a trial in the Senate, then I think they're pushing it to the political realm saying, okay, we couldn't handle that in the House and in the Senate, but you know, voters out there, you need to be thinking constitutionally, not just in a partisan way. Yeah, I will just add on the specific question. You know, Nazi comparisons are almost always specious. It is true that there was a attempted coup at the Beer Hall uh, in Munich and that that was a early feature of Hitler's rise. And so you can say that, uh, well, a coup is a coup is a coup and therefore Trump is like Hitler. You know, Hitler is an extreme, extreme case in so many ways. Uh, and their coups are relatively common and coup attempts are even more common. And so, you know, it's a little bit like saying Trump has anti-democratic instincts, Hitler has anti-democratic instincts, therefore they're similar. Uh, no, actually they're not similar. You know, Hitler is the outlying situation in almost all comparisons. And so I would just urge the questioner and listeners in general to avoid uh, uh, Nazi comparisons, except in the situations in which, you know, if, if there's not mass murder going on, the Nazi comparison is almost always a bad one. All right, Vanessa, uh, the floor is yours. Thanks very much. Um, I was struck yesterday in the contrast between, you know, all the actions Trump didn't take and then the person who actually did end up giving some orders, and that was um, the vice president. And so in kind of the later part of the day, they're saying Pence is on the phone with um, DOD and uh, with other law, with law enforcement. And I'm curious, you know, doesn't that in itself present a lot of kind of constitutional issues. And isn't that in itself almost a form of coup where you have, you know, the president's very clearly not wanting, you know, the Department of Defense to do anything. And the vice president is telling them they should. And that's what gets done. And I was I was struck how that 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 showed up in the hearing and then was not dwelled on. And I haven't seen that much commentary on it. I'd like your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm going to take this one myself. Uh, I also, uh, David may, may have thoughts, and if others do, uh, please chime in. Um, look, uh, I think you're exactly right. And what we had here, what described last night was basically a soft invocation of the 25th Amendment, you know, where uh, the cabinet with the vice president's uh, approval functionally transfers the president's authority to the vice president. Here you had the effects of the 25th Amendment invocation, at least in a soft sense, without its formal uh, invocation. And that is, you know, not the way that the, the uh, thing is also is supposed to work. You also, by the way, had the Secret Service refusing to comply with the president's direction to take uh, him somewhere, you know, as though the president is sort of the vassal of the of the 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 Janissaries and the palace guard. Uh, so yeah, I think your point is a deep one. A lot of things about the constitutional structure here were not working. And the reason they were not working was that the president had, uh, I think the technical term is lost his fucking mind and everybody around him was managing the situation uh, rather than managing it the way the constitution imagines, which is Either you impeach and remove the guy, which had already been tried and was ha had failed, or you invoke the 25th Amendment. But nobody wants political accountability for doing those things. So they were just defying him and using his power in their own hands. David, do you agree with that? Mostly. Let me briefly put some distance between the two cases you cite. 
The second example you cite, which is the Secret Service refusing to take him into a riot, that is not a constitutional issue. The the president is not a, a dictator, a potentate who commands everyone in the government to do everything he says, no matter what. The Secret Service takes an oath to preserve and defend, like everyone else, to protect and defend. And their job is to ensure the safety of the person of the president and of the presidency. And they were doing their job in that case, and there is nothing constitutionally wrong there. The first case, however, is more troubling, and I do hope there is more examination of this. The solution to a dereliction of constitutional duty is not to find a different way around the Constitution by going to the vice president. In this case, it's particularly troubling because they didn't even really need to do it. The The Defense Department could deploy the National Guard. They didn't need the vice president or the president to make a choice on this. But we certainly need to make sure that in the quest to ensure that constitutional government remains, we don't look to solutions outside of that constitutional structure simply because it's convenient. High time Dozier, the floor is yours. Okay, great. How can we prevent um, U.S. citizens from going to jail behind uh, misinformation or disinformation or um, getting uh, a tweets or something that's using modern technology, you know, was confusing some a lot of the people. How can we prevent this in the future? Sure, I'm I'm happy to speak to that. I think that um, one thing that the committee has done uh, clearly with a, a great deal of care is is trying to express compassion um, for people who they're presenting as having been misled by the former president. You saw that in how they they spoke about people who were, in, in their words, ripped off by the Trump campaign's efforts to kind of, you know, present the election as having been stolen and who donated money to campaigns that may not even have really existed that were run by the Trump campaign. Um, I think you you also saw this um, in the, the words of uh, Vice Chair Cheney last night. I, I don't have her language directly in front of her, but she, she I think, ended with a, a really powerful comment essentially saying that in her view, the folks who stormed the Capitol were patriotic and that Trump abused their patriotism, turned it to his own ends and turned it into a weapon by uh, lying to them, essentially. Now, I think there are reasons to question that characterization um, in terms of their patriotism, and and I might, but it's a really powerful way of framing it. And I think it, it, it kind of provides an exit route in a sense, because it allows folks who did believe in the big lie to say, you know, you know what, I, I was lied to, I was used, I was misled, and is kind of extending them a, a hand in that sense. Um, I'll be very interested to see whether or not it, it has any effect, but I, I do think it's a powerful message. Okay, David Botts, you get the final question today. Thanks, everybody. Great session. Uh, I believe it was mentioned in passing at the committee hearing last night that several members of the U.S. Secret Service have retained uh, counsel and in, in other news reports, we read about uh, texts getting deleted and et cetera. What are we to think of the, the potential or maybe more than the potential of the U.S. Secret Service being used as sort of a, a patriot guard around the president? And are there things that can be done to restructure that such that they work for the office rather than individuals? Thanks. Yeah, great question and a great question to close on. I assume that one of the things that the committee is going to be collecting information on over the course of the summer may involve uh, uh, the destruction of these uh, records. Does anybody have thoughts on the Secret Service as an institution and how we should think about it and prevent it from becoming a Praetorian Guard? Just one quick thought, which is that one of the purposes of these congressional hearings is obviously legislation. And I think to the extent you can do an investigation with a mind towards what additional legislation needs to be passed regarding the Secret Service, the Department of Homeland Security, things like that, great. That, that, is, that is a useful function for these. For exploration of the specific issues you raised, David, 
Uh, we are looking at doing another Lawfare podcast on our Secret Service theme of late on our various podcast feeds. So look for that in the coming week or so as we continue to explore these issues in depth with experts on the Secret Service. We are going to leave it there. I would like to point out that every single person who is interested in this podcast and this Twitter space uh, should be listening to the aftermath because if you are interested in post 1-6 accountability, that is what the aftermath is about. Uh, we are getting ready to release episode four and uh, we, we plow along. So please, please do. And of course, episode four uh, does feature Molly Reynolds. We are going to leave it there. David Priest, Quinta Jurassic, also featured on episode four of The Aftermath. Natalie Orpit, Catherine Pompilio, and Molly Reynolds, thank you all so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me and Twitter Spaces. Hey folks, if you are not already a material supporter of Lawfare, I I don't know how many times I have to tell you this, you know, we are like NPR. We rely on you for support. So get on it. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash lawfare. I will beg, I will plead, I will do whatever I need to do. Sign up. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.